And the idea was is that uh, for patients with acute pulmonary edema and CHF, if you could trap blood in the extremities, that would reduce preload and less blood would reach the, uh, the heart and the lungs and that would reduce pulmonary edema. Uh, and it didn't work. It only took us over 30, 35 years or so to find out that it didn't work. <laughs> Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the podcast for firefighters. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again this week. You know you're getting old when today's young EMTs give you a confused look when you use an emergency medical term from your younger days. For me, it was mass pants. I said something about them in an emergency room a couple of years ago, and one nurse just looked confused. The other said, wow, you're old. So I decided to talk with someone who's been around for a while about those terms. Kelly Grayson has a bunch of letters after his name, and they add up to about 25 years as a field paramedic, critical care transport paramedic, field supervisor, and educator. He's currently a critical care paramedic in Louisiana. He's a former president of the Louisiana EMS Instructor Society and a board member of the Louisiana Association of Nationally Registered EMTs. Kelly writes the blog, A Day in the Life of an Ambulance Driver. He's also a published author, and you can find a link to his books and his blog at our website, code3podcast.com slash obsolete. Aw, come on, you had to know that was coming. Here now to discuss EMS terms that will baffle the younger paramedic is Kelly Grayson. Welcome to Code 3, Kelly. Uh, I was glad to, glad to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me, man. Now, I'm not sure exactly how old you are, but I have to imagine that you got into this business because of a TV show in the 1970s. Actually, no. I uh, um, Probably the thing that got me into EMS was uh, Rescue 911 uh, in, the, in the 80s and early 90s. I, I was a fan of emergency and watched it a lot, but uh, I was a little bit too young to, to catch it on its first run. I watched it on the reruns. Uh, but, I, yeah, big Johnny and Roy fan, but uh, I was always wishing for my William Shatner moment where they memorialized one of my calls on Rescue 911. Yeah, you know, actually, that was a great show. I love to see him standing in front of the Huntington Beach helicopter, fire engine, <laughs> police car, and say, I'm William Shatner. Tonight, true stories of caring people who make a difference on Rescue 911. <laughs> Scotty, I need more power. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that was a good show. I did enjoy that. 
Well, you are an expert in some of these older, uh, obsolete now uh, techniques and, uh, and terminology, and so I thought we would talk about it a little bit. Sure. The first one is, of course, the pneumatic anti-shock garments or the mass pants that I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, the old mass pants, man. Uh, do, you, do you remember the, uh, the originals, the David Clark uh, shock trousers, and then they had the, uh, the really fancy ones, the uh, the Gladiator shock trousers that all had a had a pressure manifold to gauge how much pressure you put in the pants, and, and a color coding system for how it was supposed to be attached and inflated and everything. Those were those were really nice, <laughs> not very effective as it, it took us a generation to find out, but uh, they were pretty pretty elaborate pieces of equipment. And boy, it sure was popular once they became available to use them on patients out in the field to keep their blood pressure up. Oh yeah, there's been been more than a few times I've I've taken the patients to the hospital who were who were basically bleeding Kool Aid. Uh, you know, in the days when you put the mass trousers on them and you you gave three liters of fluid for every for every liter of blood loss and and uh still hadn't managed to to plug the holes that they were leaking from so what leaked out of them was was uh was pretty pale with all the iv fluids we put in people but they had blood pressures you know they, they'd keep blood pressures uh they'd die anyway but uh, <laughs> it, would, it would get the blood pressure up yeah <laughs> All right, and then, of course, there were the manual defibrillation paddles. You know, those were the big clunky things where you had to put the gel on them, smear it around, then you had to oh, yeah. put the paddles in place, tell everybody to clear. Oh, yeah, the, the, the children these days don't don't remember the things where our little mantra we used to uh, recite in ACLS class. I would gel the paddles, I would apply the paddles to my patient, applying 25 pounds of paddle pressure charged to 360 joules in shock, or, or do my stack shocks at 200, 300, and 360. Um, I even worked with a, an old Hewlett-Packard defibrillator that had a paddle pressure gauge built into the paddles, a little bar graph, and, and you had to press hard, uh, press the paddles down on the chest hard until the green lights on the bar graph lit up. That's how you knew you were you were pressing hard enough uh, and applying at least 25 pounds of paddle pressure. And, and <laughs> the kids these days go, paddles? We make paddles. Yeah, and you know, I like the quick look feature, but nowadays they just put the patches in place and they let go and it pretty much defibrillates by itself oh yeah yeah i used to uh i used to demonstrate in classes how uh if you were a little bit shaky with your quick look if your hands trembled a little bit uh even assistively looked like course v fib <laughs> so i guess it's it's nice not to have to put your hands on uh on the patient now and and, and lean over them to do the paddling you can uh you can you can defibrillate from a distance that's uh i guess it's uh more convenient but boy it sure is simpler isn't it yeah, but you know, back in the day, we were happy with that stuff. We liked it. Yeah, yeah. We we, we drove our ambulance uphill to the station both ways <laughs> through the snow. And by God, we were grateful. <laughs> now, if a combat tube and a bag valve mask had a baby and the airway baby inherited the worst features of each, we would have a... An EOA. Yeah, the esophageal obturator airway, or its or its fancy cousin, the esophageal gastric tube airway. Uh, 
but you know, I, I tease people about that, the, the old EOAs, but believe it or not, Scott, there are actually states that still mandate uh, an A uh, or a mandate an EOA being carried on the ambulance. Believe it or not, uh, I think until just recently, uh, Rhode Island still carried them. They may still carry EOAs on the ambulance. Uh, I kind of find that hard, hard to uh, to fathom. But uh, and apparently, in some places, the ELA hasn't gone away. That is a little strange. Apparently, yeah. Out nineteen eighties of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about them is that they could actually injure the patient when you're inserting them if you didn't do it right. Oh yeah, yeah. You cause a lot of trauma by jamming one of those things home. Yeah. And you still had to maintain a mask seal. That was the bad part about it. It was every bit as difficult to insert as a comba tube uh, and every bit as potentially traumatic. And you still had to maintain a mask seal to ventilate the patient effectively. So it, it, it they kind of sucked. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about oral screws, which, you know, is funny just because you have to say it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of those things you can drop into conversation and uh, and and sound dirty and be be perfectly innocent about it. Uh, I like phrases like that, things that can have double meanings. But um, yeah, did you, did you ever get a chance to use an oral screw when you were when you were uh, in our younger days? I pry somebody's not. mouth apart with one of those. No, I was I, never um, lucky enough to have someone who was having a seizure. The the last time I saw or even used an oral screw was July the 4th, 1997, um, and we were working a, a call where a young man had drowned, uh, and when they fished him out of the water and, and tried to resuscitate him, his teeth were clenched, and we were unable to ventilate him. And I was trying to get his teeth apart so I could uh, drop an oral airway in him and, and, and it even do a jaw thrust. And uh, one of the medics happened to carry an oral screw in his personal uh, uh, first outback, so he handed me an oral screw and tried to... Uh, I tried to open his mouth with it, and the darn thing didn't work because you have to find a gap in their teeth, you know, to, to insert the thing and start cranking on it to pry their mouth open. And then, uh, this kid had uh, the world's worst overbite, but otherwise perfect teeth, which is pretty unusual for our service area. So I didn't even I didn't even get to use the oral screw in the way it was intended. The darn thing just didn't work. And now people, you say that, people think you're being dirty. Yeah, you know, it's true. That's one of the things that we thought was a great idea when we first heard about it. But then it didn't turn out to be quite as useful as you hoped. Yeah, yeah a bunch of stuff like that. I was I was coming out of our ER a couple of years back, and, and they have uh, the the uh, anteroom to the emergency department. Uh, I guess the, the airlock there. Uh, <laughs> Between the outer ER doors and the and the inner ER doors, it's just a repository of of discarded equipment and stuff that they never used while they were uh, renovating their emergency department. And they had a Thomas half ring splint uh, leaning up there against the wall, and that thing sat there for a year. And I would ask other EMTs, do you know what that piece of equipment is? Or ask the nurses and the doctors. None of the doctors knew either. Finally, we found an old ortho, uh, uh, an old orthopedist coming in there on the call, and I, I grabbed him by the elbow. And said, hey, why don't you tell him what this, what that thing is? And he said, Oh my God, that's a Thomas Halfring. I haven't seen one of those in thirty years. He's <laughs> been sitting here the whole time. Yeah. 
for, mm. for the kids, that uh, Thomas Halfring was like a hair traction splint without a ratchet device at the end. You actually had to tie a cravat to your patient's ankle into the end of the splint and then use a Spanish windlass to pull traction with. It was really high-tech. <laughs> Speaking of high-tech, how about rotating tourniquets? Oh, man. If- I, I am lucky in that I... You know, by the time I came into EMS, rotating tourniquets had kind of gone by the wayside. Uh, but I use that uh, I use that example for historical perspective um, because I I actually have worked with paramedics that that uh, they had a a rotating tourniquets station at their uh, uh, during their their certification exam. They had a, a skill station on rotating tourniquets, and you had to recite w- what arms you put them on, what pressure you'd inflate to, which is like 10, 20 millimeters of mercury above the diastolic pressure, uh, and you had to leave them on for 15 minutes and then rotate them around. They actually have illustrations in old nursing textbooks about how these things were supposed to be rotated, and the idea was is that, um, that for patients with acute pulmonary edema and CHF, if you could trap blood in the extremities, um, then uh then less blood would uh that would reduce preload and less blood would reach the uh the heart and the lungs and that would reduce pulmonary edema. Uh and it didn't work. It only mm-hmm. took us over thirty, thirty five years or so to find out that it didn't work. <laughs> but, well it's one of those uh, things where you do it and you think, well it must be working and then they continue using it for years until someone finally said, you know what? This isn't really doing the job that you think it yeah. is. Yeah, and the, the, the manifolds for, for those things, they look like great big blood pressure cuffs. Uh, and the manifolds for those things, uh, the inflation manifold, was uh, made by the same company that made mass trousers, David Clark. Uh, you can do a Google search on the Internet, and you can actually find the, uh, find uh, pictures of those old devices where you could inflate these tourniquets and then rotate them around the limbs, uh, leaving you'd have three, three limbs tourniqueted and the other one open, and uh, every 15 minutes or so you'd go rotate them around. <laughs> Didn't work, though. Nope, and we did it for years. Then again, we also decided that elevating people's feet above their head would solve a problem with uh, shock, and that didn't yeah. work either. And it's and and that's still being done. That's a that's an idea that just will not die. And I don't, you know, it's despite uh, the fact that there's no evidence that says it works and plenty of evidence that says it doesn't work and actually uh, makes uh, breathing more difficult, raises intracranial pressure, all these kind of things, they're still putting people in Trendelenburg position. Uh, they, you know, and, and it wasn't even designed for shock in the first place. <laughs> Dr. Trendelenburg was a surgeon who, who used it to get abdominal organs out of the way uh, when he was working on structures down in the pelvis. Uh, but somehow, like, like so many things we have in EMS, we, we adopted it uh, and thought it would be a, a good idea, easily adapted to, to our uses, never really studied its use, and, uh, and never really questioned its, its effectiveness. Uh, and and it's still being done today. You find plenty of people out there that think that you need to raise somebody's legs over their head or or stand them on their head uh, when strapped yeah. to a board to, to raise their blood pressure. Well, it's kind of like an old wives' tale, you know. I heard we yeah. used to do this. Maybe we should try yeah, it. Yeah, let's try it. Or yeah. maybe we it's shouldn't bi- try it. That's right. It's the by gosh and by gum method. By gosh, it seems like a good idea. So by gum, let's try it. Yeah, well, this fits too. What is this? I don't yeah. like change. 
That's right. That's right. That fits perfectly. The only one that really likes change is a wet baby. <laughs> All right, we got a couple more on your list. Uh, external jugular IV access, which you had mentioned that you kind of miss doing that. Oh, yeah, man. That was my vein. You know, when when back in the day when we would work a code, you know, and you you had to, uh, you did five compressions to one ventilation, and you worried so much about getting an IV in and and getting drugs on board and and uh, pushing all manner of antiarrhythmics and and getting the patient intubated. Heck, I'd spend most of my time up at the head during a code. <laughs> you know, we'd start right in, and my partner would would start off with five compressions and one ventilation. Uh, and uh, we we do CPR like that until I got somebody that could that could bag a little bit, and I would drop an ET tube in the patient. And while I was up there, I'd go ahead and, and insert an, an external jugular, and it's a great vascular access. It just uh, the easy IO has made it you know pretty much obsolete because I never have to get up there. Uh, I never have to to spend the time uh, sinking an easy I mean uh, sinking an external jugular when in you know fifteen twenty seconds I can get a uh, uh, drill a, a needle into the tibia and it works just fine. So I uh, kind of miss that one because it, it's a sexy procedure to do, you know. It looks cool. It does. And last and least, I think, is uh, the Radio 10 codes. Nowadays, everybody's using what do we call plain speak. Mm-hmm. But, but it was cool to be able to use 10 codes and sound all official, you know. Oh yeah, you know, and then what was funny in 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 uh, 1991 we had a uh, in in our service area we had a uh, nitroparaffin plant explode, uh, and it killed uh, nine people and, and flattened houses and a, and a pretty big radius around it. Um, and uh, there were paramedics arriving on scene from the local ambulance service, uh, and they were they were hollering for the fire department to hurry up, hurry up. And the funny thing is, is the the uh, the ten code uh, that the paramedics used for uh, to mean expedite transport uh, for the fire department meant return to the station. So they were telling these guys to hurry up, and they were canceling and turning around, and it delayed response by the fire department a, a, another twenty minutes or so. So you know, and that was back in nineteen ninety one. I'm thankfully we finally gotten away from that, but you still see the old hands that that still use you know some a few ten codes, ten four and and uh ten fifty and ten nine and stuff like that. We we just like to uh back in the day we'd like to, to get a new dispatcher on the console and, and uh hit him with just a barrage of, of ten codes all at once. You know, hey dispatch, we're ten ninety eight, ten eight, ten nineteen, ten eighteen to our ten forty two. We're gonna be ten seven for a few minutes for a ten thirty three, ten one hundred. If we're not ten two on that, we'll be happy to ten nine. <laughs> and then they the say, new dispatcher uh, would go Okay, <laughs> thank you. I'm going yeah. to look those up now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one, drive up, drive up crazy. one day in Tucson, I heard a uh, an officer calling for medics, and someone asked what the condition of the victim was, and he said he's ten seven. And I said, and no one knew what that was. Yeah. yeah, and I said, well, that's one way to do it. I mean, you could yeah, just say he is, he's, he's, he's he is out of service. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, those were the good old days. You know, the funny thing is we thought that stuff was the latest and the greatest at the time. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see 15 years from now what current things we're doing 
that have been proven ineffective or, 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 you know, they've devised better ways for it. The, the things that we think is cutting edge uh, are cutting edge now. Uh, it'd be nice to see what they're, uh, how they, they wind up becoming antiquated and obsolete uh, for the EMTs of the future. Um, uh, the only certainty we have is that things are going to change. You know, that, that's the only thing that we can count on is that things will change. That's true. All right, Kelly Grayson, thanks for joining me today on Code 3. Scott, it was a pleasure, and and you guys and and all your listeners, y'all have a safe one. Links to Kelly's blog and his books, including En Route, A Paramedic Stories of Life, Death, and Everything in Between, are at our website, Code3Podcast.com slash obsolete. If you haven't become a patron of Code 3 yet, now's your chance. All you do is click on the Patreon link on our website, Code3Podcast.com. You can make a monthly pledge to support the podcast. We want to make this the best show we can, but we need you to join us. What's Code 3 worth to you? A dollar a month? Five? Ten? Maybe more. And when you pledge, we have some nice rewards for you. So don't wait. Do it today. And become a patron of Code 3 right now. All right, that's it. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next Thursday with more. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, we'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.